The title of this talk is Waking Up to Reality. What mindfulness is, what mindfulness cannot accomplish, and what it can accomplish. The first discourse of the Buddha, which he taught after his enlightenment, was about what is called the Eightfold Path, besides a number of other important topics. The seventh aspect of this Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. Last week I presented the eighth aspect, right, concentration and steadiness. To begin with a verse by Shantideva that describes the purpose of mindfulness. When the elephant, my mind, is tamed with the rope of mindfulness, all fears and worries disappear and all wholesome qualities fall into my hands. So first, what mindfulness is. First, it's important to distinguish between ordinary mindfulness and so-called right mindfulness. Everybody is mindful, depending on the situation, in road traffic, when driving a car, hopefully, in important conversations. But even, I think, breaking into a house or Stalking game as a hunter, it probably takes mindfulness. I don't have the experience with this, but it's quite obvious. Mindfulness is useful and often indispensable, but it has not much to do with meditation or spiritual practice. Mindfulness, as it is understood here, is something more sophisticated. That's why it is called Right mindfulness or Samma Sati in Pali. It's a wakeful, attentive, immediate abiding in the present moment. Sati or Smirti, the terms for mindfulness, carry the meaning of remembering and could simply be called memory. In the Vipassana meditation, Sati is used in the sense of remembering this moment and being present, awake and attentive. In the Theravadan tradition, Sati or mindfulness is listed among the wholesome qualities. While it may be, or while it is seen as neutral or, or even non-beneficial according to other traditions. So here it's a very specific kind of mindfulness. It is understood as a state of mind free from desire, aversion and judging, permeated by inner balance and equanimity, which really then is Samma Sati, right mindfulness. This kind of mindfulness is unbiased and has no preferences. Also, it's always in relation to something. 
there's an interesting statement referring to mindfulness practice, actually referring to us and our practice. I don't know who said it. It says, we're in a relationship with experience because it is there, not because it promises to become enjoyable or present. Okay? It's not obvious, you know. We're mindful of things because they're there, not because we want something from them. It means we're really just there, just here with what we're experiencing, whether wished for or unwanted. Let us continue. Oh, okay. (laughs) Mindfulness is on everyone's lips today. We actually have a mindfulness boom. This is a very positive development. If it will be able to establish itself permanently in our society, in our schools, in the workplace, or in healthcare. When we talk about mindfulness and the effects that are attributed to it, we always refer to right mindfulness, even though this may not be clear to many who use the term mindfulness these days. What they mean with it is really right mindfulness. So I will purposely use right mindfulness mostly through this talk, rather than just mindfulness, in order to remind us that what is understood today as mindfulness is actually mostly right mindfulness. So that much about what mindfulness is. Now, what mindfulness alone cannot accomplish. Mindfulness alone is not enough for a beneficial, insightful and liberating practice. It needs an entire entourage, a retinue, uh, associates or colleagues in order to fully function as a positive and transforming force. In its entourage, there must be essential mental qualities like faith, effort and energy, collectedness and steadiness, as well as insight. These five so-called spiritual faculties, or indriyas, including mindfulness, are important components of a well-functioning mindfulness practice. Faith, confidence, is needed, otherwise mindfulness is devoid of heart and of devotion, lacking the confidence to tackle what it wants to achieve and the confidence that it actually can achieve it. The progression of one's practice cannot be foreseen or controlled. We need faith so that we can open ourselves to what we have not yet recognized and understood. That takes a kind of faith. Utechania says, we need faith in our practice and trust in ourselves. 
confidence in what you're doing will grow when you begin to see the usefulness and benefit of your practice. Again, it's always interesting to see, is that true? So faith, effort and energy are needed, otherwise mindfulness is without drive and practice is slow and tedious. Effort also is what it takes to remember and to bring the attention to be mindful. And collectedness and steadiness are indispensable because otherwise mindfulness is distracted and unstable. Mindfulness sometimes is compared to the brightness of a flame that allows us to see things, things that previously were in the dark. Collectedness and steadiness are compared with the firmness of this flame when it burns in a windless place without flickering. The mindfulness might be there, but not very steady, so it takes the steadiness or concentration. This makes it possible to see with more continuity, with more clarity, with more accuracy. So faith, effort, collectedness. Ultimately, it's all about wisdom and liberating insight. Without it, mindfulness is without brain. It sees but does not understand. It needs insight in order to know what are useful means, to see and understand what the nature of all things is, and ultimately to facilitate inner liberation. So we have mindfulness with faith, with effort, with steadiness and insight. Part of the retinue. The interplay of these four faculties or injuries is monitored and regulated by mindfulness. It's compared to a carriage pulled by two pairs of horses. In order to get ahead quickly and safely, it takes a skilled coach woman who sees that all four horses pull equally. So you stay on the road, don't go over, you get the bends. Faith must be paired with wisdom, insight. Otherwise, faith is blind and insight, wisdom will merely be intellectual. Effort or energy must be paired with collectedness and steadiness. Otherwise, the energy is unbridled and restless and the collectedness may become dull. This is the two times two horses. The function of regulating these four is a very important job of mindfulness. The mindfulness, I can tell, there's not enough energy, so bring up more energy. Faith is lacking, so bring up faith. That's the mindfulness's job. Seda Utechania goes so far as to say that right mindfulness is composed of these five spiritual faculties of faith, effort, collectedness, 
insight, wisdom, that those four are essential actors in the entourage of mindfulness. In order to awaken to inner freedom, right mindfulness must also work together with other colleagues, namely with the so-called qualities of awakening, which I'll just list. There are the three just mentioned, mindfulness itself, energy and collectedness, plus investigation, joy, calm and equanimity. And it also needs the wholesome powers of kindness, of compassion, and of appreciative joy, of metta, karuna, and mudita. So it's quite an entourage that is needed, really, to make it what nowadays is just called mindfulness. So much for what mindfulness alone cannot achieve and what entourage or employees are needed. Now, in the functions of right mindfulness and its entourage, here it always means all of these. Here's an illustration or, or illustrated list of the different functions that right mindfulness, along with its entourage, can achieve. You will see the examples mostly come from ancient India, where agriculture was the main occupation of society. That's where the examples come from. Also with typical tropical wildlife. The more experienced among you can check how far these functions are actually part of your practice. And uh, since it's quite many examples, since it's ten examples... I put out copies for you out there on the table in German and in English. English, And please, if you speak German, take the German ones so that uh, there's not so many English ones. Okay, so right mindfulness penetrates into the depth. It is not like a cork that floats on the water surface, but like a stone that sinks into the depth. That's right. Mindfulness does not stay on the surface of experience, but sinks into its depth if it's actually right mindfulness. It's not just a little mindfulness. Next function. Right mindfulness has the overview. It is compared to a person standing on a tower from which one has an overview of the surrounding land. Similarly, mindfulness can consciously perceive what is happening in our body and mind and in seeing, hearing, feeling, emotions and thoughts. It's aware of what's going on. And the factor of clear comprehension is also involved here. So one more entourage. Next, when appropriate, right mindfulness exercises restraint. 
the image is six animals are tied to a firmly fixed pole. The snake wants to take refuge in a hole. The dog would rather run into the village. The bird would like to fly away. The crocodile wants to crawl to the river. The hyena desires to sneak into the cemetery. The Indian cemetery. The monkey wants to run back into the forest. All six are, are tugging at the rope. They're tugging and tugging until they're exhausted and give up. Eventually, they calm down and they settle down. Similarly, we face the challenge of the inputs on the six sense doors, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, thoughts. Uninterruptedly, you might have noticed, they talk in the direction of pleasant shapes, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, and so forth, fight the corresponding unpleasant sensory inputs. And there's six of them, that's why it's six animals. Right mindfulness watches over the six sense doors and does not give in to the talk until the distracting energy finally becomes exhausted and allows the mind to settle into a quiet, alert presence. Here, renunciation is also involved. And with wanting so many things, it may be helpful to remember and apply Stephen Wright's statement, which I like a lot. He says, we cannot have everything. Where would we put it? So next is, right mindfulness acts as a protection. Wild elephants must be prevented from entering the fields and agricultural land, eating the plants and the crops and trampling everything. Many, many years ago I've been in southern India where the Tibetans just started a new settlement and though they don't, they're not allowed to work the land, they had to work the land and um, get rid of the jungle around so they could plant some uh, crop and get some food. And when the plants started to grow and long before they were actually ripe, um, they started, they, they had to spend all night around the field making noise with torches and all that to keep the elephants from coming in. The interesting part is they were working elephants. So they were they used them all day long but because then they don't have, they didn't have to feed them. In the night they sent them in the woods. Then of course they wanted to come into the fields. But it's you know protecting the fields. Accordingly, right mindfulness hinders unwholesome forces such as desire and hatred and elephants from entering our minds and destroying the wholesome qualities such as generosity, compassion and others. It acts as protection. Number five, 
Right mindfulness accentuates the characteristic of each experience. Just as salt accentuates the specific taste of food, so does right mindfulness emphasize the particular characteristics of present experience. With hardness or softness, heat or cold, pleasant or unpleasant, alertness or dullness, <clears throat> it sees clearer and more distinctly what is. And also, it recognizes the universal characteristic of all things and experiences, such as the constant change, the inadequacy or dukkha, and the non-self-existence of it all. Here, insight is important part of the game. Then right mindfulness fosters the wholesome. Just as a shepherd leads his animals from grazed useless fields to a pasture of fresh grass, right mindfulness tends to steer the heart and mind away from useless and detrimental inner territory to wholesome, beneficial states. Here, wholesome intention is also involved. Right mindfulness brings about discriminating power. The gatekeeper at the city gate lets those into the city who are friendly and conducive to the city. He refuses to admit those with bad disposition who are detrimental to the city and its people. Right mindfulness and its entourage distinguishes what is wholesome and what is not. They foster what is wholesome and refuse to the unwholesome entrance, entrance into heart and mind. And this does not happen in the sense of defensiveness, but through wise discernment. This quality of mindfulness is also referred to as appamada, ethical conscientiousness. Then number eight. Mindfulness, right mindfulness allows for cognitive reorientation. This is somewhat strange example. Don't think it's from the text. But it's interesting. Screaming children in a restaurant. The guests are getting increasingly frustrated and angry, especially about the mothers sitting in the next room. Until they realize it's a group of mothers who are deaf, who have never heard their children scream, talk, or cry. So you see the reorientation that comes up, right? Mindfulness is unbiased and friendly, and as a result, what is perceived as hostile is seen with new eyes. Even negative thoughts such I'm a failure, I'm always so restless and excited, as well as other opinions, views and assumptions can be reinterpreted and positively changed by right mindfulness. Here, of course, also kindness and compassion are 
part of the game. Number nine, right mindfulness promotes benevolent investigation. A search, a surgeon uses a probe to carefully examine a deep wound to find the cause of the injury and the way it can be cured. Right mindfulness explores the present experience, makes what is hidden visible, finds out what needs to be done for healing and recognizes what should be given up. So it's the benevolent investigation part and obviously investigation, Dhamma Vichaya is involved here. Last image. Right mindfulness gives direction and undistractedness. It's a somewhat extreme image. <clears throat> and I actually toned it down. It's the quality that someone has to mobilize when carrying on the head a jug filled to the brim with oil without spilling a single drop while walking through a crowded marketplace. Here collectedness and steadiness as well as calm are involved additionally. Now, these are examples or illustrations of the function of Ryan Right mindfulness and its entourage. <clears throat> Take a printout and have a look how this works with your practice. Another point in this connection. It's good to understand mindfulness can only fulfill all these functions when practiced on the basis of ethical conduct non-violence, of respect for others' property, sensitivity and non-harming in relationships, especially in intimate relationships, honesty, as well as care in dealing with alcohol, drugs, money and power, ethics as a base. Now the areas where <clears throat> right mindfulness is applied. There are countless, sometimes varying descriptions of mindfulness and its purpose. The Buddha named four areas of our experience which we should meet. Sorry, which we should meet with right mindfulness. They are the four foundations of mindfulness, Satipatthana. It's the body, the feeling tones, Vedana, but which we'll say more. Mind and heart, Chitta, as well as the objects of the mind and heart, Dhamma. These four foundations cover the full span of all possible experiences we can ever have. This means there is nothing in our existence that is not worthy of our mindfulness. Precise instructions for considering these four areas can be found above all in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse of the four foundations of mindfulness. This is an essential basis for the practice of insight meditation, of Vipassana. 
in this this course on the basics of mindfulness, it says in abbreviated form. Thus have I heard. At one time, the Blessed One was living among the Kurus at Kamasadamma, a market town of the Kuru people. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. This is the direct way, O monks, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, of liberation, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Now, the explanations on the four foundations follow. It says, Herein one lives contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having overcome in this world covetousness and grief, which means with equanimity. Mindfulness is directed to the body, sensations and, in the sense of the aggregate of corporeality, to, towards the experiences of seeing, of hearing, of smelling and tasting. So we have body sensations, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting. We're attentively abiding in the body and or in the sensory experiences. Physical sensations, as you know, are an essential area and an anchor for mindfulness. And for many people, particularly in the West, it's not so self-evident. Often we live like the character in James Joyce's Dubliners, where it says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. So often we're lost in thoughts, ideas, daydreams, planning, remembering, quite far away from our body. So it's important to connect, connect, connect. The discourse goes on with the second foundation. One lives contemplating feeling tones or Vedana, Abbreviated, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, and equanimous. This concerns the mindfulness of the feeling tone of all experiences, namely pleasant, unpleasant, including painful, and neutral. It is towards these feeling tones that we constantly react with desire and any kind of variation of it with aversion, variations of it, or with indifference. This is a very crucial area of our practice. I'll say more about and I'm sure in this week a lot more will be said about it. But this is the second foundation. Then the text goes on with the third foundation. One lives contemplating mind and heart, citta, in short, Ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, and equanimous. This concerns mindfulness of all mental, mental factors and states, 
energetic ones, cognitive ones, and emotional ones, such as, and I'll give you a list so you get a sense how vast the range is. Drowsiness, wakefulness, collectedness, distractedness, confusion, clarity, interest, boredom, joy, fear, anger, equanimity, desire, attachment, longing, appreciation and joy, envy, jealousy, loving kindness, hatred, arrogance, feelings of inferiority, simplicity, dignity, an endless amount of I feelings, and so forth and so forth. It's all worthy of our mindfulness. Furthermore, it also refers to the mindfulness of inner attitudes. I started to mention metta being the optimal inner attitude for doing vipassana. <clears throat> Very helpful to see, to notice, to become aware of what they are. Not to do much about them, but to really know them, feel them, see them. To mention a few inner attitude being judgmental or condemning or aversive or critical or nagging, complaining, clinging, pleasure optimizing, yearning, bored, disinterested, or benevolent, welcoming, open, compassionate, kind, serene, interested, appreciative, equanimous, and so forth. It's all how we meet what's going on. Interesting to become mindful of. Finally, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. One lives contemplating mental objects, dhammas, in short, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful and equanimous. This refers to the mindfulness of a number of important aspects of the practice, which I'm not going to list here just because it would go beyond the time frame for this talk. So, so much on the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, the areas where right mindfulness can be and should be applied. <clears throat> Certainly worthwhile for serious practitioners to know these four areas of mindfulness by heart, being aware what they are and when we are with which one. Now, <clears throat> we look at the point at which mindfulness can be applied very effectively in the practice. It is the point between stimulus and response. When we experience pleasurable visual stimulus or impulses, seeing something pleasant, a beautiful sight, we usually react with desire and attachment or somehow wanting something, leaning forward 
at least somewhat. The same happens with pleasant experiences of hearing, fascinating music, words of praise. I always want more words of praise. Of smell, seductive odors. Of taste, of fine food. Of bodily sensations, delightful touches. And of pleasant thoughts and feelings. On the other hand, we usually react to unpleasant stimuli or impulses, a disgusting sight, an insult or noise, stench, bad food, terrible thoughts, with aversion, resistance, irritation, anger or hatred. And to neutral stimuli are neither pleasant nor uncomfortable, neither beautiful nor ugly, neither attractive nor repulsive, we very often react with disinterest. And when we react with disinterest, that's when they say it gets boring. It's exactly these reactions that give us discomfort, frustration and inner suffering again and again. It is here that wise Right mindfulness can make a huge difference to our lives. Viktor Frankl points out the enormous importance of this point and the possibilities that we have there. It's between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom or our detriment. So first, a standard way things run in our mind, you know, in connection with that space, at that point. What we come in contact with, the, the stimuli or impulses we feel, is Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. What we feel, we perceive according to our conditioning. We classify the experience by means of fixed assumptions, concepts, and prefabricated evaluations. Like an asylum seeker, a refugee, can be perceived as a human being worth of our support, or as a disturbing intruder. It very much depends on our conditioning. A stake can be seen as a promise of enjoyment. Do you remember what, what stakes are? <laughs> it can be seen as a promise of enjoyment or as an expression of an insensitive lifestyle or as both. Then next is, this creates papancha. Papancha meaning fast-growing, endless chain of uncontrolled growth of thoughts and associations. The definition of papancha. Like, you know, we see mountains. It would be good to go hiking again soon, sometime. Actually, it's really about time for vacation. 
maybe hiking holidays in La Palma. They say it's really nice there. It's good to hike. You know, we had this great apartment last time we were there. And off we are at Papancha. Going from hundred into thousand into endless. In these trains of thought, we start dwelling. Sich darin aufhalten und darin verlieren. Dwelling. Through what we dwell in, our minds are formed. And in the longer term, even the structures of our brains are formed. This is how our world arises. Actually, my world, our personal world, which means our very specific way of experiencing this world. Now the same process with the background of, let's say, depression or pain or deprivation or maybe abuse and no mindfulness and no awareness. So upon contact with the senses or thinking and feeling experiences, with that arise depressed moods, unpleasant thought processes. Unwise attention then creates distorted unrealistic perceptions and associations. You know, this always happens to me. It's her or his fault. Nobody loves me. These people are such a drag. So forth. This in turn produces papancha, again, proliferation and rumination. And the thoughts and feelings revolve endlessly within the same old loop. or loops, many different ones. There arises in the constriction, increased identification with me and my calamities, in increasingly closed feedback loops. Accordingly, we also experience our world as threatening, as bleak, as unfair, and so forth, our own personal world. Now again, the same process with the background of right mindfulness and its entourage. Upon contact and feeling tone with the experiential background with without, of course, <laughs> without the experiential background of negative tendencies, thanks to wise mindfulness and interested investigation, there are no papanchas or a lot less papanchas, as is no fast growing endless chains of uncontrolled growth of thoughts and associations. Because we are now mindful and present, the reactive process can be led towards wholesome path of kindness, of compassion, of insight or just of clarity, maybe there also arises much weaker, maybe even no identification with I and mine. Accordingly, we experience our personal world as interesting and meaningful, as worth living in social connection. Very different 
individual worlds we have. What has only explained briefly here, when applied consistently in our lives, will bring positive effects to enormous extent on ourselves and on the world at large. When we really use our practice here for this purpose, or investigation of this spaces in between stimulus and response, so much about the point where mindfulness can be applied most effectively. So we have five more minutes. It's only 45. <laughs> Just been checking on whether I should cut here or do the last six minutes. I'm allowed. Since the title of this talk is Right Mindfulness Awakening to Reality, I'll try to explain for a moment how this waking up or awakening through mindfulness might look like. It may not look like that, but that's sort of a very general sense of the direction it can go. It's always dangerous to say how things will happen in, in practice, right? We, sp- <laughs> we spoke about this uh, uh, tulku who said when asked to teach how to realize ultimate reality, said, I can't teach it to you. It basically happened to me at age six or something. I don't know how I got there. So that's what I mean, you know. <laughs> May not <laughs> go through all, or like, you know, some people are born awakened. <laughs> okay. It might provide an idea of the direction this practice is leading towards. Let's start with the initial situation. At first, we live mostly lost in thought and unawareness of what's happening in our minds. Then, maybe inspired by Dharma teachings or something else, maybe meditation, we learn to practice waking up, day in, day out, over and over again. At this point, remembering to be mindful and present is our main job. We also begin to practice and live on a basis of ethical conduct because we start to recognize how influential and helpful an ethical life is. Then, secondly, at times we become more attentive and aware and our current experiences are being observed more continuously. This is an important step in the liberation from a life that was dictated almost entirely by thinking and acting on automatic pilot. We start to see how much things work on automatic pilot and wake up. Still caught in it, but starting to see and understand what's going on. 
begin to see how conditioned and unfree our ways of thinking and acting often are. This might be the point where we believe the silly saying that goes, self-discovery is always bad news. It's not true, but it's also not entirely wrong. (laughs) But now we start to see more often thoughts as thoughts, emotions as emotions, dramas as dramas, and are significantly less identified with them. Mindful, we also increasingly recognize the feeling tone, Vedana, of experiences and the respective automatic response or sometimes wise response. That's a key area of the practice already just described in connection with Viktor Frankl's statement. Most likely we'll, we still spend some, quite some time in the initial mode, but increasingly more time in this second one. The next, life is getting clearer, insights of various kinds arise. Internally we feel more spacious, more free. In our meditation we begin to spend some more time on the level of seeing the processes of experience come and go, happening by themselves, rather than being identified with the content which in normal life everybody is. We're much less trying to change things within the practice, much less trying to make them the way we want them to be or we think they should be. There's more seeing and understanding and less fixing fixing experience. We get an inkling of what the following Tibetan saying means. The essence of samsara, that's the cycle of suffering, the essence of samsara is trying to correct. Interesting statement, isn't it? Insight meditation is not really about endlessly fixing things or ourselves or our experience. It's about inner transformation through seeing and through understanding. That's very different from manipulating. So we more often allow experience simply to come and go with great interest, with great mindfulness. Then we begin to notice at times that there seems to be a distance to our experience. There's the experience and there's I, the observer, who watches, who happens to be in control or out of control. The more we, the clearer we see, the more we see out of control. Seeing this, we more often try to be mindful in the midst of experience rather than, you know, distancing us from, from what's going on. Perhaps a kind of embodiment of the mindfulness where we write in the experience a conscious alert 
and calm in the midst of our comedies, of our dramas. There are actually two very important tasks of mindfulness. The first is the presence in the moment of the stimulus through sensation and emotions, our reactions or responses to them, what I just explained before. The second is the clarification of our distorted, unrealistic perceptions. And the next point has to do with this second task of mindfulness. It's the next or fourth area here. We recognize in deeper ways the unsteadiness and impermanence and the in, it's a difficult word, inadequacy and sometimes painfulness of all things in existence. We start to see that in our direct experience more and more clearly. This increases our ability to accept people, things and situations in life as they are and to let them go when they pass on. This brings more and more peace and quiet into our hearts and clarity into our decisions and our actions. And sometimes we catch a glimpse of the fact that there is no one who is or has the experience. We begin to understand the Buddha's famous statement he made to Bahia. It's actually a little more than six minutes. The statement goes, Thus, Bahia, should you train yourself. Bahia got enlightened right after having heard that. Okay. In reference to the scene, there is only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. Then, Bahia, there is no you. When there is no you, you are neither here, nor there, nor in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. The tendency towards self-identification with the experience diminishes even in difficult situations and even when the clashes are present. We are no longer so much caught in them. A further waking up might look as follows. Through mindful awareness, it begins to dawn to us, ultimately, all living beings, all experiences in existence are just mere appearances, dreamlike, as a reflection in the water, as an echo, as is pointed out in the Diamond Sutra. The Indian Buddhist Mahasiddha, great yogi, Saraha, he wrote about reality, this one verse, in a somewhat blunt words this great yogi sometimes used. He said, people who think things are real are stupid like a cow. And then he went on. People who believe that things are unreal are even more stupid. 
things we ourselves are dreamlike, we're mere appearances, yet our actions have pleasant and painful results. How we act still matters. May dream like pleasant or painful results, but as long as we're identified to them, they're there. Nevertheless, pleasure, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, desire and undesirables, everything comes and goes. Everything looks like it comes and goes. Everything seems to come and go. But ultimately, nothing has ever moved. Awareness of the ultimate nature of existence, freed from the deceptive and tormenting states and emotions of heart and mind, of the kleshas, enables the true liberation of the heart. Close with the words of a famous meditation master. That is exactly the goal of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.